Welcome to the Unsuccessful Podcast, a podcast where we talk about vocation and ministry and success and failure here in Portland, Oregon. I'm David Libby. And I am Josh Hawk. And today we have a very special guest. And Josh, can you introduce her? Because you two are friends. Yes. Kind of. I heard, I heard you're, not, you're not really friends. He doesn't reply to my work, so. It's true. Right. It depends on the day. <laughs> um, but I have known, yeah, so my good friend Rachel, um, Rachel and Chetta. Did I get that right? Perfect. Call her Chetta sometimes. Um, like the cheese, Chetta cheese. <laughs> um, but I've known Rachel for one-fifth of her life. Nice. Um, and not one fifth of my life. Yeah. How old are you? A lot older than you are. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've, I love Rachel. I actually every day, I don't always show it, but I do love you, Rachel. And, um, your life has definitely been an inspiration, you know, to, to many, um, and to me definitely for sure. You, lots of elements of, of your life. I know you've, you know, you've got a, a tough past, um, mm. And, uh, and so it's, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, um, to be able to talk with you, um, and, uh, and to share, share some of the things that, um, that you've gone through and, and what has come out of that. Um, you are definitely an artist in many ways. We were were just talking about that too. Well, that's what I do. Like, I, I like <laughs> to try to make our guests cry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's good to know. Good to but know. Beforehand. You know, Before the podcast begins. <laughs> you can't even wait till the end. Like, hit them with the hard stuff at the end. No, you do it right. right away. And then we start. Yeah. Don't even expect anything less from you, Josh. Right. So, right. Um, so Rachel, you've, you're a writer. You do a lot of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when was the first time you remember really kind of sitting down and writing some of your thoughts? You know, I was in third grade. Um, so my third grade teacher, Mrs. Machado, she's probably the first person that ever believed in my writing. And pulled my she pulled my mom aside at a parent-teacher conference and was like, you have to, like, read Rachel's things that she writes in class. This isn't regular third grade work. Like, I love it. She's inspirational. She's great. And I have no idea what I was really writing about. But I remember I used to have this little diary. It was pink. My mom bought it for me. And I would just kind of write about my crushes and regular things. But to me, like, it was really important. So Wait, I think pause. Those things were different, right? Your crushes and regular things weren't the same. I mean, some would say yes, some would say no. My crushes <laughs> kind of meld into my regular things. Don't really know. I can relate. Like, I had <laughs> lots of regular crushes. You got to swap them out. Keep them fresh, That's too, true. you know? Yep. <laughs> All right, sorry. Continue. <laughs> but, yeah, that was when I really started to realize that writing was such a great tool for me to just kind of heal and go through the process of life because I didn't understand a lot of my life. You know, I was a kid in a single parent home. My mom was an alcoholic, also worked graveyard. So there wasn't really much else for me to do besides write and like watch TV and create my own fantasies and my own worlds and just kind of live in that fantasy. So that was kind of where I started. So let's, let's stick with that. Cause that's really interesting. Um, y- you say I didn't understand a lot of my life which I love so much because I think that's that's a part of so many of us. Right. We we don't understand ourselves, but we we just like to stuff that thought down, mm-hmm. just sort of barrel ahead. You explored it and put it into your writing and your creativity. I mean, as best as I could as a child. Um, as I got older. I started to write poetry. I think when I was in middle school is when I really started to toy with poetry. So a little fun fact about me, my mom taught me how to read out of an Edgar Allan Poe anthology when I was in second grade. (laughs) So like, I think poetry has kind of been ingrained in me since I was a child. My mom was a writer, wrote a lot of like screenplay type stuff, wrote short stories and essays, didn't do too much poetry, but she definitely could write a poem if she wanted to. But yeah, middle school really kind of drove me to write because I was bullied a lot and I like always felt like I had like this unreturned love for people and I was like, why don't people just like me? And so I would write about that and I would write about that isolation and that feeling of not being seen and wanting to be seen so badly. Thanks, mailman. <laughs> but yeah, 
so yeah, now I just write mostly poetry and do a lot of reflecting because I think we don't really understand life and that's something that can be a huge benefit or it can hinder you. And I think when you explore that unknown, you really start to learn about yourself, you know, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. So you started writing in uh, third grade and let's pull back again. You're not from Portland originally. No, I'm from Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. Very different vibe. Very different city. People are a little bit more rough. A lot less caring. They don't really care about how you're doing. Like when I moved here, someone asked me how I was doing in the street. And I was like, what do you want? (laughs) So (laughs) not normal at all. People are, it's like, go, go, go. Don't care about you. It's me and mine. Yeah, nobody gives a crap about anyone. How are you doing? What's your angle? (laughs) Yeah, what do you need from me? (laughs) Wow. Wow, that's, that's, uh, that's very different. It's funny because I find... Being in Portland, I come from a small town and and people will talk to each other on the street. And I find it here where nobody's friendly and no one will talk to each (laughs) other. So you have the completely different experience. This is the friendly town. Yeah. (laughs) What the heck? That's true. Don't you guys in small towns like leave your keys in the car? Yeah, our house, we rarely locked it. Unless we went on like a few days or more vacation our house was Wait, just open you, you guys no. lock your houses in portland you don't because <laughs> you got a lot of nice stuff I, <laughs> you don't want and my house? address is I know. stop it no, sometimes uh-uh. I'm, I'm pretty trusting it i this complete side note but um i had a friend <laughs> one time who had a convertible and people would break into the convertible and they would they would rip the top off like they would take a knife to the top and he got tired of replacing the top so many times that he just started leaving the door unlocked. And he put a sign on there. He's like, if you're going to break in, just um, just open the door. You know, don't cut <laughs> open my convertible top again. So completely side note. So the, That's what I would do. I'm the, tired of these people. The moral people. of the story is don't buy a convertible in Portland. Why yeah. would it's a good you? policy it anyway. Also. It rains 10 months. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Seriously, why would you have a convertible Everybody here? in L.A. has convertibles, don't they? No, that's such a stereotype. We don't just drive around Beverly Hills Drive in our convertibles with our little sc- neck scarves. Wind blowing, like, no. And the boa feathers. In the boa feathers. I have my little oh. poodle in my purse. I'm so ignorant. <laughs> I second that. Just kidding, Josh. Love you. Oh. Um, so back to, back to you, Rachel. Um, so LA, how old were you when you came to Portland? When I was 18, when I came to Portland, I made the decision on a whim. My car was stolen and like stripped for parts and then doused in oil. And it was just kind of a mess. And I called my uncle and I was like, why is my life so hard? Um, to add to that, my mom had passed away two years prior. So I was on my own from the age of 17, was in a really abusive relationship I was like, why is my life so hard? I don't understand. Having like lost my mom, having just things happen to me that were ridiculous. And so I was just kind of like, okay, I'm going to go home. And I came home and I like started living with my grandma and my uncle. And I felt like Portland was weird and I thought there was nothing to do. And then I started working at the little Starbucks down the street and I met Sam, who's also our friend. Mm-hmm. You know, Sam's really introverted, so the fact that he even spoke to me and invited me to do anything is crazy. But that's how I ended up meeting Josh and his family at this little church. And I was not religious whatsoever, didn't even care about God or Jesus or anything. And then I started coming to these game nights. And I had, like, very recently, like a week before, decided that I, like, believed in God and that God was pursuing me, and I had no idea what that meant and how serious of a commitment that was. And coming here, I feel like really deepened my faith and really allowed me to see that God doesn't really have those parameters that I grew up thinking he did with, like, I was going to hell for basically everything. And, yeah, so you guys are my first friends. And still are. It's true, and my first church. You're yeah. still her first friends? Still her first <laughs> friends. I mean, he doesn't really still care friends. about my text messages, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. Being an artist, like, you really care about what 
other people think of your work. And so uh, she, Rachel, texted me the other day. Or I commented, <laughs> I think, on one of her works. I'm like, oh, that's so good. And she goes, oh, you should look at this. And I did, <laughs> but I never responded back. Which and is a no-no, yeah, guys. Like, no response is, is bad. The biggest response. response. Usually, like, no news is good news, but... Mm. Not in the case of an artist. Mm-mm. Here's a question. I, I just thought of this now. You said um, you. it sounded like you were sort of tiptoeing into faith because you, you didn't know exactly what it meant to uh, you know, follow Jesus or, or be a Christian or everything. And then you said something interesting where you, you said you thought that um, you were just gonna go to hell for everything. Yeah, I so little backstory. I grew up in what was essentially an atheist home. My mom was raised in the church and then came out as LGBTQ to her family, and then got disowned, which I feel like is a common narrative for a lot of people in the gay community who come out to their families. Yeah, very common. And so my mom was like, "Well." I'm going to California to live my best life. And we went, I was like four years old and. Oh, that's why she went. mm -hmm. She, so my, I'm actually, I was born in Jersey. My mom was raised in Jersey after she moved to America from El Salvador. My grandma, my grandpa came over here and we're like, we're going to start a new life. They ended up in the East coast and then they came to Portland, bought their first house here, which is the same house that's down the street. And they like just worked really hard to provide a better future for their kids. And it didn't really work out how they anticipated. You know, my uncles got really wrapped up in the North Portland gang scene. My mom was out in LA drinking and like coping with all of her issues through alcohol and life was hard. LA is expensive. So that is what ended up happening. And so my mom was like, I hate God. Like God doesn't care all these things got really like wound up in the occult and just crazy things. So I was used to that. And I was like, well, if God's real, why doesn't God like change any of these circumstances? Why does my mom's family hate her? Why does my mom think she has to do witchcraft? Like just all these crazy things. And then like, I just didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't feel like it was something I like, I didn't feel cared for by this God that everybody was praising. And then I also felt like, God was really just about shutting everyone down. Like if you were doing things that were not right. And I felt like a lot of the things that were quote unquote sin were silly things. Like I don't feel like people who are gay should go to hell, things like that. Like that just did not resonate with me. And then one day, maybe like two months before my mom passed away, I asked her for some reason we were sitting on the couch and I was like, mom, do you think that God is mean? Like, what? Do you, who do you think God is if God is real? And up to that point, my mom was like, who, God who? Like, I don't care about God. But she said something that, like, I think softened my heart, and I didn't know it softened my heart till a couple mm-hmm. years later. But she was like, you know, Rach, I think that the God of my understanding is a God who loves and, like, really cares about who you are as a person and, like, your values and how you treat others and just, like, God is really essentially just love. And for me, I was like, okay, that's cool. But two years later, when I started to discover my faith and I felt like God just presented himself to me out of nowhere, I understood what she meant. And I think it was those words that really have helped me grasp like what I think God's grace is and how I think that can extend and be an umbrella over people So it's just been kind of crazy finding my faith and going from like not having a faith to then being a little bit too woo woo and being a little bit like everything has to be super pure and like I can't make any mistakes, got to be the best I can be to finally coming to a balance of being like, okay, like where is God working? What does God want me to do? Does God actually care about the trivial, stupid things that I thought were important and just kind of shifting it to community, you know? It's, it's funny, a lot of, I see this with so many newer Christians, and I know I, I've, I was very much this type of Christian uh, early on in my faith and, you know, still continue to wrestle with this idea of the angry checklisty God, Yeah, you know? <laughs> and we can, we can hammer this idea so much of, of God is love. It's it, all throughout First John, it's all throughout 
anything John writes, really, and yet it's still so easy to see God as angry at us. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because we know how messed up we can be or what, but um, it sounds like you went through some of that. Yeah, I think that I spent... Especially when I first came into my faith, you know, I came in and I was like, well, I already messed up the purity part. Like I've done things like have sex and like I've done drugs and I've done all these like crazy things. And so I was like, am I worthy of being loved by this God? And how do I rectify my wrongs? And so I was stuck on like this uphill climb of I have to be super, super good because I've been super, super bad. And I think that that was a big barrier I had to break to realize that, like, I don't need to spend my entire life trying to rectify things that I perceive as wrong. Now, were they good for me? Probably not. They weren't healthy things, but I don't think God is sitting there with that checklist being like, okay, you did five good deeds today. So one of your bad deeds is taken off, you know? So I think that's like a big challenge. I think, like you said, new Christians usually are like, oh, I spent all my life screwing up. How do I make it great? Well, and I think I think part of it, I, I can see you trying to talk, Josh, but <laughs> forget you. I'm, down, I'm talking first. Uh, no, I. <laughs> y- you see that a lot in youth ministries, and I've been a youth pastor for a lot of years, and so I... I know that I've done this, but as a youth pastor, you just kind of naturally see what some of your youth are into and you feel Mm -hmm. like you need to teach against that. But now as a, as a pastor, like a senior pastor, I do the same thing. Like I thought, (laughs) I thought maybe that this was a youth ministry specific thing, but you know, you see, you see people going down paths that are unhealthy for them. And so you, you tend to, or I shouldn't say you, I tend to gear my teaching to like speak against that. And that just continues to hammer the God, like God is disappointed in you. Like that book that's hilarious. And I probably shouldn't recommend on the podcast because there's uh, bad language in it. But, um, <laughs> but, but that idea of God is disappointed in you because I, uh, you are doing X, Y, and Z. Mm. And, and so for a lot of these newer Christians, they come into churches and hear our messages that say, you suck, stop sucking. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) And that, yeah, that my thought is that it, you know, Rachel, you're saying for a new Christian, like I felt like I needed to um, seek God's approval, you know, to like to counter that balance, you know, to, counteract all the bad things that I have done. And I don't see that just in new Christians. Like, I think we can get stuck in that. I've seen a lot of old Christians who continue to live their life in such a way that they're hoping to please God, you know, and, um, and we're, we're really, we're really hopeful at the end of our life that like, okay, well, hopefully all the good things I did kind of balance out, you know, or, you know, tip the scales of all the bad things I, I did. And, um, it's just a misunderstanding of grace. And I, I feel like, mm-hmm. um, I feel like sometimes it takes, it takes us really, 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 really messing up and really screwing up to really understand God's grace. And it's the, the aspect of brokenness until mm-hmm. we get to that point where we realize we cannot do it, um, that we really can rest in, in God's approval in his chosenness. We talked about that a while ago. Um, with Henry Nowen's book of the the life of the beloved, um, but that chosenness, that fact that God wants us on His team, on in, in His family, um, and it's not dependent on anything that we do. Um, I think for some people in the church, um, I myself included, um, we haven't we haven't been broken. We don't have you know a life that's full of you know regrets or or you know down and out. Um, like I don't have that quote unquote horrible sinful life, you know, that, that many people have been brought out of. And so can I really experience God's grace? Mm. I mean, the temptation for me is to be able like, I don't need God really because I've done it. Like I, yeah. I've, I've been able to live a good life, you know, and pull myself up by my own bootstraps kind of a thing. Like I got this, you know, and, and thanks God for supporting me in this. But, um, 
but you know, I'm going to keep working hard and, and living hard in that. Um, so I think we do ourselves a disservice when we, uh, when we, when we don't get those, those real kind of broken times. Um, and I do think that there's opportunities for us, even when life doesn't deal us a really bad hand, we still have to figure out, find that brokenness. You know, we still have to get to that place where we're completely dependent on God. Well, it's like the classic underdog story. Like you reach that rock bottom and suddenly like the lights of the heavens open up and you're like, well, how low can I go from here? Not much. Like, well, I got to get up and like do things and still live and exist. And I think a couple, like three years ago, you gave a sermon where you talked about picking yourself up from the, by the bootstraps and how sometimes that doesn't actually really work. And like you talked a lot about just existing in that like kind of failure in that muck. And I think that was probably one of my favorite sermons that you ever gave because there's just this incredible power in surrender and accepting that sometimes you're not going to be able to come back from the bottom and hit the ground running, but that's okay. Yeah, and that really, at the end of the day, our circumstances don't necessarily always change. Exactly. Um, Rachel, you said if God's real, why doesn't he just change the circumstances? Like that was part of your struggle and Mm -hmm. kind of your rebellion against God, I I guess, maybe for a time. Um, I heard a term, instead of atheists, there are more people who are actually wounded theists. Um, And it sounds like your mom's probably, you know, was in that camp where it's not that I don't believe in God, but the God that I was taught um, is really hurtful. And I don't, I don't want to believe in a God that, you know, or not, or not just hurtful, but not there when we are hurt. Yeah. Right. And then, and then we're hurt by the people who, um, who follow him, you know, who, um, who claim to be his disciples. And and that's the worst. You know, we were talking about Mm -hmm. this over lunch, about the fact that we experience God through each other. You know, Rachel, you mentioned community as being kind of a, a, kind of maybe a core value for you or a core part of your life. Um, and that's really, I think, how we experience God um, through each other. And so when we are being wounded, when we are being hurt, when, you know, we're being kicked out of our community for, you know, life choices, um, you know, or... Um, or sometimes for no good reason. Yeah. Really? And we are just, it's this form of rejection, and it really is feeling like we are rejected by God. Um, because right. it's his people who are rejecting us or even just people in general. Um, so, hmm. And I think there's also this big thing with hypocrisy. Like I feel like yeah. once you see pe- like you're getting kicked out of the community and you're thinking like these are supposed to be people who believe in the same God I believe in, who believe he's graceful, who believe he's merciful, who also have flaws and make mistakes, but they're kicking me out. Do I want to associate with these people anyway? And I think like sometimes when you get hurt on that level by people who are supposed to be like you, it really does alter your faith because you're like, well, I believed in these people because they're tangible. I see them. I feel them. I know them. How do I believe in a God that I don't see, who I don't always feel and who I don't always feel like I know? I feel like that is where a lot of that deep rooted hurt comes from and that humanity Mm -hmm. and feeling like you're supposed to know me on this level and you kind of fail to do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we you see that happen. I mean, communities will scapegoat people um, mm-hmm. quite a bit, and it especially is painful when you see uh, someone get ostracized for one thing, and then everyone else isn't, and. And they're doing problematic things as well. Right. And you think there's there's a hypocrisy there. Um, it's it's probably um, somewhat human nature. It's definitely been a Christian thing for quite some time now. Yeah. And we we kind of have to own that. Oh yeah, we owning that the church can be problematic and hurtful. I think is kind of the first step to even getting people to look at us and be like, oh. Maybe they're not that crazy. Like, I think a lot of people fail to see the humanity in Christians because 
so many people have been hurt by these like ideas that are not even really what a lot of us believe. That's good. Wow. Um, so Rachel, you brought one of your pieces, one I of your, your writing with you. Um, I'd love to, love to hear that. Um, and, uh, and talk about that for a little bit. So you want to share that? Yes. So just a little intro. So Brown Girls is a piece I'm going to be reading today. Uh, so I am a Latina and I'm also Palestinian. So growing up in the society has been a little bit different for me. You know, there's a lot of just kind of it's like a prejudice that you experience as a woman of color that sometimes people don't even know they're projecting onto you. So, yeah, this piece is kind of about that. And we can chat about it after I read it. All right. Brown girls are to be seen, not heard. Calladita te ves más bonita. Household names like Trump and Pence don't want to hear the deep cries of injustice and oppression. Turn a blind eye to the families left behind because their documents don't match. Only hushed whispers for boys like Trayvon and women who are too much like Sandra Bland. Brown girls with their sauce and flair, fingers waving in the air, painting no across bright blue skies. Brown girls with their fierce eyes and eruptive souls, stubborn hearts with a taste for freedom that spreads farther than any border. Brown girls with their delicate touch. Oh, how that touch can mother wounds from lifetimes ago. Wounds that remind us of the way we are perceived. Brown girls are ghetto, no class, mean. I cannot be sorry for declining to allow you into my sanctuary. This country has spent years hurting us into the margins. Enough is enough. You do not get the privilege of setting foot on my welcome mat unless I say so. To the woman behind me at the coffee shop, no, you cannot touch my hair. To the men that have laid beside me, I am not your conquest. You see us and dismiss us all at once, coveting our curves and our culture and discarding our remains. But I know brown is strength in its purest form. To be brown is to be fearless in the face of adversity. I lift my glass to the brown girls whose spirits match my own, to the brown girls that kiss their abuela on the cheek and thank her for driving them home with her calloused hands and her guarded heart. This one is for the brown girls that swell with pride at the thought of being different. And here's to the ones who haven't quite found their courage yet. Brown girl, you are enough and never too much. Whether you are the color of caramel, ivory, or chocolate cake, you are worth more than diamonds. You are more than what fills those jeans and what cooks on your stove. Brown girl, you are a queen, royalty amongst heartbreak and severed dreams, an earth-shaking, ground-breaking force of nature birthed into a competition that does not end, among blue eyes and porcelain skin. But you, brown girl, you are light, like a thousand suns that beat on your mother's back as she shaped you into life. The sweat on her brow like spring rain, you are the result of pain, and wonder Mary to yield a work of art. To brown girls around the world, never forget, that you are bold, you are beautiful, you are more than your fears and broken dreams, perfectly made, with your brown skin and your brown heart, you are worth it, brown and all. Mm. Wow. Dang, that was powerful. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) No, that was really, really good. Um, There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, Tell us... Maybe uh, where some of the some of the passion there came from. Uh, tell us what what your experience has been being a a woman and a person of color in um, well in society today. So for me, so as you guys can see, like I'm mostly white passing. A lot of people don't even think that I'm a Latina unless they know me and they've like spoken to me which can be difficult because a lot of the times I am privy to conversations about people of color and I'm kind of mm. amazed at the ridiculous things people will say. Mm. And I I have been with my grandma at the grocery store and my grandma has a pretty thick accent and I've watched cashiers treat my grandma differently than they treat me. And I'm always really frustrated with that because I feel like it's not okay 
And it makes me recognize my privilege, even being a woman of color with privilege above other people of color. How's she treated different? So there's like this impatience, you know, my grandma will stumble with her words and she like will try to get things out. And it's just, she kind of struggles a little bit more than most people and people dismiss her. They're just like, okay, ma'am, I said that this is like 1995 and she's like, just trying to be like, how's your day? And they're like, okay, thank you. It's good. Thanks. Bye. And then I come up and they're like, hi, how are you? What are you doing today? It's so sunny outside. And I'm just like, whoa, that's my grandma. So like, why does that change? And, you know, I remember as a little girl, when 9-11 happened, I still had a unibrow because I was a little girl and I wasn't going to do my eyebrows. And as soon as 9-11 happened, it was like the very next day that I was always getting called a terrorist and I was always getting bullied. And I'm in fifth grade. So that's when I first started to experience like, oh, maybe I shouldn't share the fact that I'm half Arabic. And I stopped telling people I was Palestinian, which is like why I mostly identify as a Latina. Also, I wasn't raised in my father's home and he's Muslim and he lives in Jersey. So I wasn't very, I wasn't really part of that culture anyway, but I was also scared to tell people because for a long time being Arabic was seen as a bad thing. And so I was like, oh, I'm a Latina. And that was my identity for a long time. And just like being when I speak to men or I meet people, they're always like, oh, you're so saucy. You're like spicy. You have that Latin passion. And I'm like, first of all, don't tokenize me as this like passionate Latin woman because I can literally (laughs) be passionate. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a Latina. I can get pretty passionate too. Oh, I know. Right, but not but not the I mean that that just goes to show the um the pointedness or the stereotype. No yeah. one would call you spicy or sassy. <laughs> I mean it, No, no. I mean you you two could act exactly the same and yet you get that's different true. words. You would just be a powerful man who knows what he wants. I would be a ticking time bomb. I'm saucy. I'm spicy. Like I'm kind of crazy. But you would be like, "Oh, that's he's assertive." A know? conquest. You like in your poem there that yeah, being like I'm not a conquest. Um, like that. That's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. That and I, I was taken by no. You can't touch my hair. I. <laughs> I no. I mean that. You would be surprised how many people uh, will touch you without your permission in the world when you have super kinky or curly or just different hair than them. They're, 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 is it that they're passionate or they're not passionate? uh, Intrigued by a a different culture. And so they want to explore and just immediately grab your head. Yeah. That's weird. They're curious. It is. Thank you. It is weird. They're curious, but all of a sudden they forget personal boundaries and it's, see, it feels invasive. It's like, if you really wanted to know about my hair, ask me, don't touch me. Don't put your hand near me. I don't know you. Like, it's really frustrating Because it's like, why would you touch me? You wouldn't do that to someone else. But we become like these weird little animals or these creatures on display. And it's like, what do you even say? Like, my best friend is very outspoken. So she'll be the first one to turn around and smack this person and be like, why would you think you could put your hand in my hair? Me, I'm a little more awkward. I'd be like, thanks (laughs) and be scared. But it's crazy because you're put in this uncomfortable position and you don't even know what to do. So like their curiosity, sure. It's okay to be curious. That's fine. But don't forget basic human interaction and don't forget about boundaries. Cause if I put my hand in your hair and you don't know me, you're not going to like that. You know? Yeah. I just had this kind of weird, bad thought. Like I'm just going to start this new thing where I'm oh, just going to no. go touch every, everybody's hair. Oh no! Like, oh, David, I just want to touch your hair, and there are. <laughs> I, I will very, know, I will show no racism, you know. Or there are no very few ideas I've heard in the past <laughs> month that have been worse than that. <laughs> Man, that is oh, so so bad. Such a bad idea. Okay, let's yeah. be honest. I won't do that. Yeah, please We're, don't. Rachel, you said something. Uh, well, first off, you. A little backstory. You posted something on Instagram this mm-hmm. week, and I commented on it, and that's actually what led to you being here, um, you know, this afternoon. But you you shared something. I'm like, oh, that is that's really good. 
Um, and you said, oh, if you think that's good here, why don't you read this? <laughs> and then I didn't comment back Still after I read this Brown Girls, this poem that, um, and Rachel thought that I didn't like her. Um, <laughs> and even though, I mean, as you heard it, it was really, really good. Yeah. And I think I was just so kind of, dumbfounded and awestruck i didn't know how to respond so no That's response really, was the best response Josh. yeah like there was there was no words rachel like there was any i looked through the emojis to find an emoji that like how do i how do i uh, muster up what i'm feeling here i cannot uh, but the the thing that stuck out to me uh and i think in your post it was something like you were you were reflecting that you were never enough or you are and always, always too, too much, much, but never enough. And so in that poem, you mm. said, that brown girls, you are enough and never too much. And I think that is, th- that really struck a chord with me. And um, I think being a father of daughters, I have three young daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, uh, I know often women struggle with self-identity and men too. Like I, I'm, Absolutely. I'm probably more feminine in that, in that way. Um, but as a father, I, that's the message that I am telling my daughters over and over again, you know, like you are, you are more than enough, you know, and, um, you are, you're really good and you're not too much. You're not too overbearing. Mm -hmm. Um, like you are just who you are. And there's this phrase that's really stuck with me and it's intrinsic value, um, and, you know, we talked about, Rachel, you know, you and I in the years past, we've worked with um, kind of with a female mentoring group with young mm-hmm. girls. And that was the message that we were trying to kind of instill in these young girls is that just just being a human, you have value. You have an intrinsic value. You are made in the image of God. Right. Um, and so your life matters just for being who you are. Um, and that goes back to our conversation just a little bit ago too about you know, trying to please God and our life has value whether we are able to please God or you know the good things that we do outweigh the bad things that has no kind of weight on our value um, and whether or not we are enough um, and so that that is a that's a tagline for sure that's a quotable. David, we'll take note on that, and you can make a meme on that. Um, <laughs> Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> but he's going to do it. Oh, yeah. man, you're so saucy, David. <laughs> <laughs> the sassiest, most spiciest. It's true. It's uh, true. I am spicy. Uh, let's, um, let's go to a place that's um, uncomfortable. Uh, so you're... You're a woman, you're a person of color, you're Latina, you're Palestinian. Um, We're in the middle of a time in which women are speaking up about the ways they've been Mm -hmm. uh, hurt and harassed and uh, uh, brought down, looked down on, Mm -hmm. paid less, um, not hired. Mm -hmm. We're... um, we're in the middle of a culture in which uh, many people are, I'll just say, aggressively pro-Israel and kind of, like, talk down about Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a president who said that when uh, when Mexican people come in, they aren't bringing their breasts. Their, their, their breasts. best. <laughs> they aren't bringing their breasts. Um, they're, they're not bringing their best. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. Um, and, and I'm not saying that idea has caught fire because that's been widely criticized. But, right. um, but you do see the impact... Um, ver- that's very slowly taken hold of some people looking down some on Latina culture. You're kind of in the middle of all of these worlds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You represent all of them, Rachel. right? So let's um, let's go there just a little bit. What would you like to see? Um, in terms of healing some of these things, like what would help 
our culture, our society. Well, you as a twenty-five-year-old who knows 24. everything, twenty-four-year-old who knows everything and can fix our culture right now. Obviously, right. Um, so I'd also like to add that I am like part of the LGBTQ community. I identify as queer as sure. well, and so like being under this. So you've got a lot of things minority pieces is is minority the right word yes okay uh you've got a lot of pieces uh about you that people would consider the minority and so Mm -hmm. you've got a lot to bring to the table here i think that first off the big thing is that there needs to be an openness to education like i was just having a conversation with a friend who was voicing like we were talking about like race and just like transgender lives things like that and like this person was kind of saying like oh I don't want my tax dollars to go to these policies and these things and why do we need to keep people safe and I was kind of like well you know this conversation is not really going anywhere because there's not an openness to be educated there's not an openness to have your perspective changed and I think that's where we do a lot of damage like if we were a more open people where like, and this is for both sides. Like if you are not willing to be educated and you think that, you know, everything, you don't know anything. Mm. And I think that's the problem. We have this communication barrier where people are like, I'm listening, I'm listening, but still are operating from their own beliefs and not actually taking in anything that's being said. And I think that's where a lot of that damage is done. But I think that what we need to be doing is really just having these open conversations. They're uncomfortable. They're not fun. Nobody wants to be wrong, but they need to happen. And we need to have this visibility and recognition that minority groups, although they are being heard a little bit more, are not being heard enough. Sure. I heard uh, someone put it once that we can think we're as as right as we could possibly be. But if we're coming to a conversation, wanting someone else to take our position, we need to also come to that conversation expecting to be changed by the other person as well. Mm. And if we don't do that, then it's not a conversation. It's very one-sided. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There is just, yeah, it's this, I think it's a lot like evangelism. Like when you're trying to go in there and be like, this person is a sinner and their life could be changed by the Lord. And you go in there and you're trying to tell them something, but they're already closed off because you came in thinking you're going to change their life. That's, it's like very similar to that. Yeah. And I think there is like, these things are not black and white. And these things are not, you're not going to get them perfect every time. My best friend and my roommate, Lexi, does a lot of social justice work at her college and she's heavily involved with their black student union and their LGBTQ group that like leads all of those conversations. And she's the first to tell you that you are not always going to get it right. Like you're going to make mistakes still. Sometimes you're going to learn terminology. You're going to learn different things and you're still going to mess up and slip up and say the wrong thing sometimes. But it really is about accountability and acknowledging when you have said or done something that may be problematic and may upset someone else. So it's not about perfection. It's about like effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know if this will go anywhere. Um, Jim Henderson's a writer that I love to death and he started this uh, set of practices. He calls them the three practices and he brings together groups of people, uh, people from wildly different parts of life. Uh, I got to see one of these sessions live and he had, he, uh, he had 12 people uh, with very, he, he picked them specifically and they were extremely varied in terms of belief. And he said, uh, Donald Trump's been president for a year now. Someone start talking about what you think about that. <laughs> and there are 12 people. And, uh, and they, uh, they were told to, um, they had, whoever wanted to talk had a minute to talk and then people could respond. But his three practices that he likes to have with people, cause he wants people to have conversations and to, uh, be educated by one another. His first practice is I'll practice being unusually interested in others. 
And then I'll practice staying in the room with difference. That's probably the hardest one, mm-hmm. um, like remaining in the room. I've had a number of conversations recently in which mm. people leave <laughs> or they stop talking <laughs> to me. Um, and then the third is I'll stop comparing my best with your worst. Mm. And when you're talking about uh, these conversations and these uh, this education that um, you and your roommate are trying to bring about and... Um, uh, it just it reminded me of those practices. It's, um, I think these kind of conversations are the only way that we're going to be able to bridge some of the divides that are happening in our culture today. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, it reminds me of of conflict and conflict resolution and how we deal with conflict. And there's different Mm -hmm. ways, um, you know, compromise is kind of the age old, like, Oh yeah, we just all need to compromise. And I've always viewed compromise as a lose, lose situation because everybody's having to give something and we don't actually kind of, uh, the, the end result isn't what anybody actually wants. Um, Whereas then there's a way of winning or attacking, and that is where we are more concerned with kind of our achieved needs rather than our relationship. And so we're more concerned about being right than we are about the state of the relationship. Um, And then you have on the other side where you have like more withdrawing and yielding. um, And that, that tends to place a higher priority on the relationship, but then you don't actually get anything done and it, and, and it, it places a lower value on those achieved needs. But if we can seek re- resolution, um, and resolution being like this, us working together to find a problem, it's us against the problem rather than me against you. Um, and if we can approach, approach everything, approach life, uh, by saying, Hey, I am pursuing truth. I like, I am pursuing a greater something beyond myself. Um, and let's do it together, um, we're going to have different opinions, but if our end goal uh, on this journey is, is, is pursuing kind of this greater truth or this greater love, um, then we're going to help each other along that way rather than approaching it from the fact that I'm right and you're wrong. Um, but I say all that to say that, that for me, what I've, what I've noticed is that what I've observed is that when we place a high concern on relationships, when relationships matter more than being right or wrong, mm-hmm. you know, and Rachel, I think that's why, you know, we're able to talk openly about these, these things because like we're friends and we have a, a, a re- there's a trust, there's a real relationship there. And so all these issues, they're not theoretical for me. Like they're not, um, I, Oh, because they're rooted, they're grounded in a personal relationship, you know, with right. you. And, and so they, they take on new meaning and there's, there's grace in that, you know, there's love because it, it's then mutual. You know, when I say things, um, not if, but when I say <laughs> stupid things, you know, like Rachel, you're, you're able to say, Oh, Josh, you're an idiot. You know, like, don't, don't <laughs> do that. Um, and that's okay because we love each other, you know, and right. it's, it's founded in this relationship. And so, you know, if we can be open to those conversations and be open to having, having relationships with people who think different than we do, who believe different than we do, who look different than we do. Um, I, I think that's a great starting point. Yeah. Um, I agree. Yeah. I think of, uh, I think of Jesus having, I, one part of the Bible that just never leaves me is when Jesus gets, uh, a zealot who hated and wanted to kill Roman tax collectors and Matthew, who's a Roman tax collector and made them yeah. both his disciples. <laughs> <laughs> um, so true. And, and I think if, if they could make it work, what's stopping us? Right. You know? So. And mm. if you really look at it, like, like you were saying at lunch today, David, the people that Jesus was hanging out with are not like the most loved people. They're not people who everyone's like, woo, I want to party with this guy. Like, no, most of them are really. Well, you might want to party with some of them, but that's, (laughs) that was the stigma. Right. Right. (laughs) That they wanted to party way too hard. No. Uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> no, it's true. It's true. They, um, for the most part, it seems that he valued the um, the outcasts and the ones who were who were stigmatized. Right. And that's why I think it's so helpful to talk to someone like you who, um, in so many ways, mm. um, it has, without any fault of your own, been pushed down some by society, by the church. And um, that's why I think your voice is so much more important mm. in the church now um, than, than it ever has been. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that is like the voice of people who have been oppressed, even if it's like inadvertently, is really it's an important voice to hear, especially when it comes to bringing understanding. And I think like you were saying, Josh, that personal relationship really does make a difference. And to add to that, like sometimes I'm going to have prejudices and weird things that you're going to have to call me out on and be like, oh, these white people and you know, I mean, I'm saying that's not uncommon so for me. So saucy and spicy. So saucy, so <laughs> spicy. Just too, <clears throat> too much. I wanna, I wanna feel their hair. <laughs> their <laughs> fine or, baby or hair. <laughs> it's true. Well, well, Rachel, appreciate you. First off, I appreciate you, um, yeah. and uh, and then Thanks, I appreciate guys. you coming on and speaking with us um, into the world. And so I just ask that when you become rich and famous from your, your writing and being an artist, um, that you remember us. The little people. The little people <laughs> and, and how unsuccessful we are uh-huh. um, on the Unsuccess podcast. Don't worry, we will be still. <laughs> Realistically, I'm an artist. I'll probably be living in the basement. So you guys don't forget me. We're yeah. pastors. We will too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just have one basement for all yeah, of us. It's true. It's true. Uh, well, well, tell the people uh, where they can find you online. Are you on Facebook, Instagram? Yeah, so I post the most on my Instagram. My Instagram handle is Rachel in PDX. That's R A C H E L I N P D X. And you can find me on Medium under Rachel Christina Anchetta. Um, I will be launching a website maybe in the next few months. I haven't really thought it out, but if you keep following my Instagram, you'll figure all that out. Nice. Awesome. And we'd like to keep this conversation going. Uh, a lot of cans of worms were open today, and I think that's good. Uh, I think mm. there, I, I mean, we could we could keep talking for another hour easy. Uh, Easily. Yeah. So uh, we want to keep this conversation going. You can find us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at UnsuccessPod. And um, you can find me and Josh on there as well. So uh, talk to us, uh, let us know what you think. Um, And as always, for the Unsuccess Podcast, I am David Libby. And I am Josh Hawk. And I don't know, how do we end these things? You you end it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll see you now. We'll see each other next time, and then we will talk at you. This was the worst ending. The worst ending, Josh. (laughs) Can we we leave all this in and just make it